Hi, River's Edge. Great to be with you this morning. Sad that we can't be gathering in person this morning, but I'm also very excited that today we are embarking on a new Sunday series through the book of Galatians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 1, and we'll be picking up in verse 1 in a few minutes. And as you're turning there, I want to start by giving us a basic context for the book. After the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, this movement, this community of disciples, of followers of Jesus, begins to explode, starting in Jerusalem and rippling outward across the known world. But from the beginning, this community faced opposition from the Jewish culture in which they found themselves. In fact, at this point in time, as many of these letters are being written, uh, there isn't necessarily Christianity as we know it, but instead, this movement is simply known as the Way, and it's considered by most to be a sect of Judaism. But what a strange sect it is. Uh, First off, they claim to be a building on the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. They claim to be a fulfillment of much of what the prophets spoke about, but they won't stop talking about this guy named Jesus who was nailed to a cross publicly and executed by the Romans, but who they claim came back from the dead and appeared to them and many others. But from the beginning, the relationship between the way and the larger stream of Judaism is a tense one. In an ideal world, Judaism would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah that they'd been waiting for, and they would have stayed right there at the the center of the plot line, at the center of the story. But this new sect, this new way was so radical, it was so strange, it was so different that uh, from what they were accustomed to, that they perceived it as a threat to the Jewish religion. And hence, from the beginning, followers of the way are persecuted for their faith in Christ. And one of the chief persecutors, sort of right out of the gate, is a man named Saul, a highly educated, great Jewish background. He comes from the elite class. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's zealous for God and defending the Torah and the Jewish way of life. And he is on his way to persecute followers of Jesus, moving from place to place when he encounters the risen Jesus. And what happens through this encounter is perhaps the most radical conversion that's captured in Scripture. He goes from persecuting and even executing followers of Jesus to then becoming one of the greatest and most influential disciples in all of human history. And so if you open up your Bibles to what we call the New Testament, 
you'll see that the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are firsthand accounts uh, from the first century, eyewitness accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But from those accounts forward, as you continue reading into the New Testament, much of what you're reading are um, letters that were written by Saul, who later goes by Paul. And he's writing to these new communities of disciples that are popping up all over the known world, which we would call, in hindsight, churches. And many uh, believe that Paul's letter to the Galatians, which we'll be studying in the coming weeks and months, was actually his first letter, or at least the earliest letter that we have in the library of Scripture. And what a fascinating context to be writing in in the first century. Jesus is back from the dead. This movement called The Way uh, is exploding. The gospel is beginning to spread from city to city. But at the moment, as Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, The Way is still a tiny little movement that sits in the midst of two giants. One of those giants is paganism on the one hand, which was most of the Roman world, and they were worshiping all sorts of gods and goddesses and spirits. They were even worshiping uh, Caesar as Lord or as one of the gods, which wasn't a problem to them. They just stuck him in with the rest. Uh, And they're even worshiping Rome and kind of deifying Rome and the might of Rome. So you have all of that happening on the one hand, and then you have this uh, minority but significant minority of the Jewish world, very orthodox, very pious, worshiping the one true creator God, the God of Israel, and following the laws handed down from Moses and many of their own kind of added customs and traditions on top of that. Uh, But many of their traditions are dating all the way back to the time of Moses or the time of Abraham. Uh, But within the ancient world, there was this sharp division between the two worlds. You were kind of in one world or another. You were either a Gentile, a non Jewish person in the pagan world, or you were a Jewish person who was following these uh, laws that were given to Moses. And then this new movement, this new sect comes along called The Way, and it's beginning to explode, but everyone's trying to figure out, hey, just how Jewish is this movement? And that's kind of the question everything that everyone is asking. Uh, they, this movement is born out of Judaism. It's a fulfillment of the Jewish hope. The people within this movement are worshiping a Jewish rabbi, but many of the Jewish people are concluding rather quickly that, wait a second, this isn't Judaism. In fact, what this new movement is proposing actually undermines uh, what we've been doing in terms of our traditions and following the laws of Moses and all of the customs that we have. And on top of all of that, they're worshiping a human being as God and a crucified human being to make it even more embarrassing. And so from the perspective of Judaism, they say this is undermining our religion and it needs to be snuffed out. We have to go and put this movement to rest. But then you have um, pagans or Gentiles from the non-Jewish world, which is where most of our ancestors are, and they're being saved by the gospel into faith in Christ, but ironically, they're asking the exact same question. 
They're saying, hey, now I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been saved out of that whole pagan worldview. I'm following after him. But what does that mean? Just how Jewish do I have to be now that I'm a follower of Jesus, this Jewish rabbi in the first century? And then into this gap, you've got this group that Paul calls Judaizers, and they're coming into these new communities, into the way, uh, which they kind of see as this weird, uh, confused subgroup of Judaism. And they're saying, hey, we're so glad that you've come into our half of the world. We're so glad that you've been made right with our God. Now, here's how you ought to live. Let me tell you about the laws of Moses. Let me tell you about all of our customs. And in effect, what they're doing is undermining Paul and under and his leadership and questioning what he's doing and trying to set up these new communities. But he's also undermining, they're also undermining Paul's message. And they, all of this kind of sets the scene for this drama that is the book of Galatians. It's all about grace and the law and our standing with God and how do we conceive of our standing with God and what do we do uh, now that we're followers of Jesus? How should we relate to the law? What role does it play in our lives? And so we are going to jump into that world and that drama starting right Right now, in chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And as we have already said, and so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Fiery words at the start of a passionate letter. Paul starts by affirming that he was called by God himself to be a leader, to be an apostle, and that therefore his ministry, his message, his gospel, all that he's going to defend in this letter that he's writing came directly from God. It wasn't from human traditions or or human-generated religion. It actually came, Paul says, by revelation. It was born out of an encounter with the living God. So Paul got his message and his gospel straight from the source, which in a sense uh, really validates who he is as a leader, as an apostle, what he's doing, setting up these new communities in Galatia and elsewhere. It's sort of a defense of him, a defense of his ministry, but it's 
it's also a defense of his gospel, that it's not something that was just handed down out of empty human religion. It's actually something that, that God gave him that came out of encounter. And both Paul and his ministry and his message and kind of all of it is under attack, in particular from the Jewish world. Essentially, the Judaizers are saying, hey, Paul and this gospel that he's preaching— are a bit off. It's a little shaky. It needs to be uh, shored up. It needs some correction from the ruling Jewish authorities. And so we're going to come and teach you guys, in particular, how to observe the Jewish religious laws, how to go about living this life with God. And so Paul greets these churches from Galatia, but then he gets straight to the point, which will be the central theme of his letter. He says, I am astonished. I, perhaps I'm, I'm shocked. I'm almost horrified that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And instead, you're turning to a different gospel which really is no gospel at all. Once you, once you add things to the gospel that I preached to you, it ceases to be the gospel. These people, Paul is saying, have in effect come in with a false gospel and you took the bait. You fell for this thing that they were giving you. And now Paul is writing this letter to call them back to the true gospel that he preached to them in the beginning, which really begs the question, for you and for me and for all of the original readers of this letter, we kind of have to start by asking, what is the gospel? What is this royal announcement about Jesus and how should we apply it to our lives? What does it look like to live this out? And while the gospel sits central to Christianity and central to discipleship and following Jesus, I think a lot of us actually struggle to grasp it. And the longer I'm in ministry, the more I realize, well, there's actually a lot of people who um, call themselves Christians who actually don't have a great handle on what the gospel message is. In fact, there are some people who go years or in some cases decades in their faith without ever having a true grasp of the gospel. But the first thing to point out about the gospel, uh, which in Greek is the word euangelion, or literally a royal announcement, is that it really is an announcement about the kingdom of God. The gospel, in its essence, is saying that Christ is king and that his kingdom is breaking into this world in the here and now, and it will come in full on the earth one day, which immediately begs some questions if you're hearing that for the first time. Like, who is this Jesus? Where did he come from? How did he become king over Satan's sin and death and, and the things that this world presents to us? Uh, how is his kingdom breaking in? which is immediately followed up by uh, his death and his burial and his resurrection. That's how it's happening. That's how his kingdom is breaking into this world. That's why we're now guaranteed that it will come in full one day. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are sort of the center of the center. They're the central act in this drama. But notice that God's mission and God's kingdom is actually a universe-wide 
concept. The scripture tells us that God in Christ was reconciling all of creation to himself, which is a mind-bending reality. Not just human beings, but all of creation was being reconciled back to God and is being reconciled back to God in Christ. And so the first mistake that we make when we're thinking about the gospel is that we tend to make it too narrow. We tend to make the gospel message, there's a God in heaven, he hates sin, I have sin, and so I need his forgiveness, but he forgives me, and now I go back to normal life. It's, it's sort of this, it's, which all of those things are true, but it creates this sort of narrow sense that the whole of the gospel message is just that God hates sin, he's found a way to forgive you, and now you can get on with it. Uh, but the real gospel is much wider than that. And so you have to ask yourself, is my version of the gospel good news for the, the birds and the trees and the oceans and countless billions of galaxies that are spreading out across the universe? Is it good news for all of creation? Because if it's not, then I would gently suggest that, that your gospel, that your royal announcement uh, actually needs to widen out into a universe-wide proclamation about the kingdom of God. So the first mistake that we need to note is that most of us tend to make the gospel too narrow and not wide enough to actually be thinking about all of creation being redeemed. But the second mistake that we make is that not only do we tend to make it narrow, but at the same time, we tend to make it too shallow as well. That traditional sort of truncated version of the gospel says that I sin, that God hates sin, that God's found a way to forgive my sin, and therefore I'll go back to normal life. I, but as I do go back to normal life, I'm carrying with me this list of rules. I kind of have this list of laws or rules that I've pulled from the Bible or from a Christian subculture, and I'm going to go through my life, and I'm going to try not to break those rules. Like that's kind of my goal as, as a Christian, as someone who keeps sinning and needing forgiveness. And if I do break some of those rules, then obviously God's angry with me and I need to go to him and repent of those things so that he stops being angry and forgives me. And then I can go back to my normal life of kind of following rules as I go. And Paul is actually challenging the church in Galatia with the shallowness of their gospel. In particular, he says, you've abandoned the grace of Christ and turned to a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. Like maybe you Galatians didn't see a big jump from what I gave you to what the Judaizers are giving you, but really you've, you've stepped outside of the gospel as you went from one to the next. And so throughout this letter, Paul is going to draw out the nature of this grace that we've been given in Christ. It's going to become the central theme, the key concept that he wants us to grasp. And if you, and the reason this is so important is that the Galatians are now struggling with legalism that are standing before God, that life with God is centered around laws or rules that we are meant to follow, and that our standing or status is going to rise and fall 
based on our ability to follow these rules. And instead, Paul is saying, hey, you need to to, um, submerge yourself in an understanding of the grace of God in Jesus. And if you do that, you won't be nearly as vulnerable to legalism as you are right now. And so he's going to help the Galatians and really all of us, the church for all time, sort that out. One of the driving human questions especially in the first century, is this driving question of how do I get right with God? Uh, How do I attain righteousness or a right standing before him? Uh, What can I do? What can I say? How should I get there? And the Jews were able to answer that question very clearly by saying the law. The law is how you get right with God. The law is how you obtain righteousness. We've been given from God the law of Moses, which was 613 commandments at a minimum as a starting point, and they often added to that. And the Jews would have said, hey, these govern every aspect of our life with God and one another. How do we please God? Well, we follow this law. How do we gain a righteous standing before God? Well, we follow this law. And then you've got pagans who are being saved by the gospel into faith in Jesus. And the Jewish leaders are coming to them and saying, hey, wonderful. You've entered our religion Yeah, kind of through an odd door or through an odd sect, their teaching is a little bit shaky, but we'll get you sorted out. Here's what you need to do. Here's the law. Here's our traditions. Here's what our ancestors have done. Follow these rules. Do these things. Of course, don't do those things. Get circumcised. Welcome to the club. Now you're in. And Paul is in the background screaming, no, like, don't, don't fall for that. That's not how it works. Righteousness or right standing before God actually isn't gained through the law. And the second that he says that, the Jews want to stone him. But Paul's going to go even further. He's going to say, hey, righteousness isn't gained through the law and religious performance. In fact, it never was. That was never the purpose of the law. The law never made anyone righteous before God. The law was only there to point out your sin, to teach you what was sin and what was not sin, and to point you forward to Christ. But now, Paul says, Christ has come, and he is your righteousness. In Romans 9, Paul says, The Gentiles or or the the pagans, the non-Jewish world, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. It's theirs now. A righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And hence, we arrive at this core central truth about righteousness in the universe. 
Paul says that righteousness before God cannot be earned through religious law or religious performance. It can only be received as a gift. It only comes through placing your faith in Christ. In Romans 4, Paul again says, To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, you did your religious work, now God owes you your payment. However, Paul says, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. How do you gain righteousness before God? Well, counterintuitively, it doesn't come from working or serving or tithing or following the Ten Commandments or following any other set of religious rules that were handed down to us or that we make up for ourselves. Paul says, no, you can, you can go on engaging in moral and religious acts all day long every single day for the rest of your life, and you will have gained nothing. Apart from Christ, it's just filthy rags. He says, it's, it's garbage. It's nothing. It gets you nowhere. You weren't actually moving. You're just on a religious hamster wheel. You're on a treadmill. You're not going anywhere. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, because if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. What a stunning statement. I mean, just pause for a moment and let that sink in. Righteousness cannot come through religious performance. The law, whether it's from the Bible or any other source, it can never make you righteous before God. And this truth is actually almost offensive. It's, it's a sense of, a, a source of frustration for most of humanity. Most of the human beings who are alive today on the planet, the statistical majority, are either engaged in one of the major world religions, uh, like Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism and things like that, um, in which their standing in those religions is based on their performance, regardless of whether or not they think there's one God or a million gods or no God at all, but they're after nirvana, it always comes back to their performance. So you have that wide swath of humanity. Or on the other hand, what's more common in our corner of the world is that you have people that consider themselves non-religious. But there's this statement that kind of non-religious agnostic people will often say, they say, hey, if there is a God, then I'll go to heaven because I'm what? A good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good moral person. I do the right things, which in a sense, they're saying either I follow God's laws really well 
or uh, at the very least, I follow the laws that our culture has decided uh, are very meaningful for being a good person. They're saying, I do the right things, therefore, I am worthy of heaven if it exists. And Paul says, it'll never work. That mindset, that mentality, you can't become righteous before God through your performance or by following any set of laws. And this just grinds against human intuition and what honestly many of us wish were true. If we're honest, some of us really wish in a sense that it was by works. Um, Everything else in our lives seems to be based on our performance. And so many of us think, well, why not this? Why wouldn't our standing before God be based on our uh, religious and moral choices? And why can't I be in control of my own spiritual destiny? Why can't I just have this path of righteousness that I choose to walk out so that when I come to the end and stand before God, what we want to be able to say is, my standing is secure because I earned it. I was a good person. I did the right things. I I excelled in whatever religion I was a part of uh, or whatever it is. I did the right things. I am owed entry into this place. That's what many of us believe to be true, humanity-wide. That's what many of us actually, I think, want to be true because in some sense, we, we want to be empowered to be able to earn our way in. And Paul says, forget about it. It'll never work. If you try to gain righteousness under the law, then that same law is going to turn on you. That same law that you want to use to justify yourself as a moral person, as someone worthy of entering the kingdom of heaven, is going to turn on you and loom over you and accuse you and ultimately condemn you. If you go to stand before God at the end of the age and you seek to bring the law along with you, if you kind of take the law by the hand and say like, come on, come on law, come with me, I want you to come and stand beside me to be my witness before the throne of God. I I want you to help justify me. And you kind of grab the law by the hand and walk him into the throne room and say, all right, law, go ahead. Like, go on and tell him. Go on and tell him how good I was to you. Go on and tell him uh, how much good I did by you. Then what's going to happen in that moment Paul says, it's going to backfire. The law is going to turn on you in that moment. And instead of justifying you, it's actually going to point out all the ways that you failed, all the times that you broke fidelity with him, all of the times that you let him down, all of the times that you fell short, those same set of laws that you grabbed hold of to bring into the throne room to justify yourself are actually going to turn and be the very source of your condemnation in that place. It'll never work. In fact, Paul tells us, whatever the law says, everything in the law, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Through the law, rather, we become conscious of our sin. What's he saying? 
He's saying the law is was never intended to be a pathway for you to attain righteousness. It's actually there to wake you up to the reality of sin, to show you what is sin and what is not sin, and, and, and kind of expose the gravity of the human condition and our need for Jesus. And in fact, Paul's saying at the same time, uh, the, the laws that God has given are actually going to serve as the safeguard so that every mouth will be silenced before him on the last day. There is not a single human being alive today or at any point in human history, aside from Jesus of Nazareth, who would be able to stand before God on that day and say, I did it. I fulfilled everything in the law. I was, I was perfectly justified by the law. And now I am owed entry into the kingdom of heaven. Rather, Paul is saying, it will be that very same set of laws that declares you guilty if you're under the law. Paul says, if you're under the law, you're essentially under a curse. You're under a yoke of slavery. You stand condemned and you are going nowhere. Don't attempt to justify yourself under the law, that will only backfire. The solution to the human problem was never the law. It was always Christ. So he says, hey, to the one who does not work, but who trusts in God, Christ becomes our righteousness. We could not get righteousness from the law, but when we place our faith and hope in Christ, he becomes our righteousness. Your sin is removed from you as you place your faith in in Christ. Christ becomes your Passover lamb. He becomes your atoning sacrifice. He becomes your righteousness. And the Old Testament, in, in multiple senses, has really prepared us for this concept, for this conclusion. In fact, if you go back way toward the beginning of your Bibles to the book of Exodus, there's this event that many of us are familiar with called the Passover. And the Passover is this moment when God comes to judge uh, Egypt, and he's going to judge all the Egyptians in the land for their sin, but he's also going to judge all of the Israelites in the land for their sin, and they have plenty as well. The only way to avoid this judgment is to slaughter a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to go outside your house and apply it to the doorframe. So you're inside your house. You can't even see the blood. The blood is applied to the outside for God to see. Then it says that as, as God sees that blood, he's going to pass over your homes. There, there's, no, there's no judgment on that home. And he moves on. And there's a sense in, in which that's the start of their liberation. And there's a sense in which those same things are true for us. When we place our faith in Christ, in his, in his body broken, in his blood shed, in his resurrection, in his empty tomb, when we do that, there's a sense in which, spiritually speaking, we're sort of taking his blood 
and applying it to our, our door frames, so to speak, so that as God comes, he passes over us. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are completely free. And that actually sets the scene for the beginning of our liberation, for coming out of the land of slavery and into a place of radical freedom. And Paul says, hey, you're free. You're not under the law anymore. You've been released. You are now bound to Christ and you are so deeply identified with Christ that the things that were true of him are now true of you. Christ died to the law once and for all. And so we say, hey, and Paul says, hey, in Christ, you've died to the law. It's, it's done. The relationship you had with the law is over. You're not bound to the law. You're not under the law. The law has nothing left to say to you. You are completely free. That's your old slave master. There's now a Passover. There's an exodus. You are leaving that place. You're not under the law. You're under Christ. You're under grace. And in this place of grace, Christ is your righteousness, all of his perfect righteousness that that he had on earth, that he has now on the throne is credited to your account. You're so intimately identified with Jesus. That's what, that what's true of him is now true of you. It didn't come by the law. Paul says it came by faith and it came by faith alone. It's a gift and you can't earn that gift and there's no alternative path or alternative system. It's just through Christ. It's just grace. And now God is leading us on a new exodus out of the power of sin, out from under the law and into the glorious freedom that we now enjoy in Christ. And because Christ is your righteousness, you're free. You could engage in moral and religious activity all day, every day for the rest of your life. You can fast and pray for hours. You can read the scriptures cover to cover over and over again, and it will add nothing to the righteousness of Christ. You can't add anything to that. But in the same way, you can sin as much as you want, whenever you want, for the rest of your life, and it will not detract anything from the righteousness of Christ. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your righteousness, your standing before God is absolutely secure. It is unshakable. Because it's not based on you, it's based on him. That's how justification works. That's the gospel of grace that Paul is so eager to defend in his message, which really begs the question, well, why wouldn't we just go on sinning then? I mean, if this really is the gospel, if this really is how justification works, if it's really based completely on Jesus and nothing else, if that's really the gospel, if I'm really free from the law, then why not live in sin? I mean, if God is prepared to call me righteous regardless of what I do, why why not? 
And you'll notice as you read through Paul's letters that that exact question actually comes up. He addresses this question in his letters. One example is from Romans. He says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, is there any reason left not to sin? If God's grace is as stunning as you say it is, and in fact, the, the, the gospel is as beautiful and counterintuitive as you say it is, then why wouldn't I just continue in sin? And in fact, the true gospel always begs this question. This question of why not go on sinning uh, is almost like a litmus test for the gospel itself. Do you understand God's grace? Because if you do, you'll likely at some point ask that question. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There's no better test as to whether someone is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. This is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel at all. How do you know if you're preaching the true gospel? The gospel that Paul speaks of that he's so eager to defend. Well, one way to tell is that it should beg this question. Why not go on sinning if that's how justification works? But notice that legalism never asks that question. The Judaizers never ask that question or get that question from the people that they're speaking to. But the true gospel should provoke that question in our minds. When the penny drops and, and it clicks in our brains and in our hearts and, and you recognize what a radical thing Christ has done, it's very natural that we would go on to ask, well, why not go on sinning? And the temptation at this point for me and for many teachers and maybe for many of you is to sort of rush on ahead to try to correct that misunderstanding. Isn't that dangerous to just give people this, this view, this vision of justification by grace through faith and, and let them have this sense that, my goodness, my sin does not detract from my righteousness or standing before God. It sounds very dangerous. And so the impulse is to say, please, right now, can you go on to mention all the reasons why we shouldn't sin? Can you correct that uh, error in our hearts and minds? But I want to resist that temptation this morning because I want the grace of God to really settle in our hearts. I think sometimes we, we sort of pour the concrete for the foundation and then we rush to build on top of it without allowing the concrete to, to cure. Uh, 
And so what I want to do as we step into this letter, as we step into this series, is I want to allow time for that foundation to become established, for things to dry, for things to uh, settle in our hearts. Because this is one of several key concepts that we're going to be exploring in the coming weeks and the coming months uh, through this beautiful letter to the churches in Galatia. And and Paul wants us uh, to, to grasp how beautiful and how radical the grace of God is. Should we go on sinning? Well, well, no. The easy answer is no, but not for the reasons that you thought in your legalism. It's for another set of reasons completely. You're free from the law. You're free from condemnation. You're free from that guilt. His righteousness is yours in Jesus. And so Paul is going to remind us as we step into this letter that you're not under the law, you are under grace, that the law, it brought death, but the spirit of God brings life. You are released from the law. You're not bound to the law anymore. And you weren't fruitful when you were bound to the law, but now you're bound to Christ and you bear fruit for him in the empowering presence of the spirit. You and I, brothers and sisters, we no longer serve in the old way of the letter. We serve in the new life-giving way of the spirit. And we could not be more excited to explore these concepts together as we step into this book in the coming weeks and the coming months. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for what it is that you did in establishing your kingdom on the earth. We thank you for your death on the cross, atoning for sin. We thank you that the tomb is empty and we celebrate new creation and your kingdom uh, bursting into this world. And our prayer this morning, Lord, as we start this series, as we really immerse ourselves in this idea of justification and our freedom from the law and what grace really means, how deep and how wide and how rich your love is. Uh, Lord, uh, in the words of Terry Virgo, I pray that your grace would dawn on our spirits that it wouldn't just be um, some facts kind of bouncing around inside our heads, but Lord, would your grace in all of its fullness and all of its beauty really dawn on our spirits and wake us up to the freedom that we have in you. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.